Hey everyone, Sylvan here. So we have a great episode all about ocean plastics for you this week, but before we get into that, I have a favor to ask you. This is our last official episode of season one, and we're going to take a brief hiatus before we start season two. During that time, we would love to hear your thoughts on how we can make Carbon Neutral better. So I've put a survey up online at carbonneutralpodcast.com. It's really quick, and it will help us plan our next season with your preferences in mind. So please go check it out. That's carbonneutralpodcast.com, and give us your feedback. Thanks, and enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Carbon Neutral. This week we are discussing a plastic ocean and I'm very excited about this episode because we have two experts this time. We have Jordan Tony of More Recycling and we have Stephanie O'Daly, a graduate student in oceanography. And as usual, we have me, Sylvan Godden, your host, and Emily Auerbach. So welcome everybody to the show. Thank you, Sylvan. So before we get into our discussion of ocean plastics and a plastic ocean, we're going to bring you some news updates. So, uh, Steffi, do you want to tell us what's going on with the ocean this week? Sure. So my update is also about plastic. Um, Yesterday, the UK confirmed that they're going to bring about new legislation to ban the microbead for all of the UK. They're going to ban it in wash-off products like toothpaste and body scrubs, but not in leave-on products like makeup or sunscreen. The U.S. and Canada have made similar bans last year, and there's also discussion to create bans in all of the EU and in South Korea. So this movement's gotten a lot of legislation being passed, and hopefully that continues. Yeah, absolutely. And microbeads are generally those tiny little plastic beads that are found in consumer products and then they just get washed down the drain and into yeah, aquifers. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're the worst. Yeah. Also, I don't even know why they would be in toothpaste. <laughs> Wait, yeah, yeah, they're in toothpaste? Yeah, yeah. I don't understand it's, why It's an abrasion um, that helps brush your teeth. It's used as an abrasive. Mm. Wow. All right. Well, chomp on some nut shells instead, people. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That's, that's my gnaw, green solution. Gnaw on bones. Yeah, chew on a bone. If it's good enough for my dog, it's good enough for you. Yeah. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, Jordan, what is going on in plastic this week? So I alluded to this in the uh, last episode, but China has been enacting very strict import laws for plastic scrap lately. And uh, since the last recording, the Chinese authorities have announced that they are officially banning the import of essentially all post-consumer recycled plastic. This is going to hit lower-grade plastic scrap especially hard since there are fewer markets for it in the United States. So now more than ever, uh, people need to start recycling right so we can reduce contamination and make sure that the plastic coming out of our recycling facilities is a high enough quality to be recycled domestically because uh, we don't really have the option to just ship it to China anymore like we used to. And I want to reiterate that that is for low-grade plastic. Uh, Not all plastic that goes to the recycling facility goes to China. Keep it in-house. Yes. All right. Good to know. Uh, Emily, I understand you have a special update for us this week. I do. So, like Steffi, I have a life change. Drumroll, please. (laughs) I am going to graduate school. Yay! Um, Yay! I'm heading up to Yale University to get a joint MBA and Master's of Environmental Management, focusing on sustainable supply chains more generally, not just in Coco. So from here on out, I'm going to keep talking about sustainable supply chains, but it's going to be broader, it's going to be bigger, and it's going to be more academic and fancy-pancy because, (laughs) So uh, if you're a listener and you ever end up in New Haven, hit me up. Otherwise, get excited because in season two, it's going to be sustainability and business all over the place. Woo! Yeah. I cannot wait. So wait, I don't. We don't get to hear any more about Cote d'Ivoire <laughs> yeah. and the the price crisis in Ghana. The price crisis is a 
huge deal, but you get a quick break from it. It's, it's been quite a saga. It's true. It um, has. You guys have really been there for it. <laughs> well, congratulations, Emily. And I can't wait to see where this takes your news updates to, you know, bigger and brighter levels. Um, Thank you. All right. So my update is not exactly breaking news about the environment, but it's just a nuts story that I found and I wanted to share with everyone. So the Molzak, um, a family living in an apartment in Brooklyn, they recently found out they were sharing their home with 35,000 bees that uh, had come in unbeknownst to them and created a huge hive above their bedroom. I guess it was like in the walls and in their ceiling and stuff. Anyway, they had no idea until I guess they did discover it at one point, like a few bees, and they um, called in a beekeeper to help get rid of them who harvested 70 pounds of honey from the hive and gave it to them. So all in all, they came out pretty well from the whole deal. But um, apparently urban bees are often more prolific and have um, longer lives than their rural counterparts. So something to think about if you uh, think you can't have bees in the city you can and you might get gargantuan harvests of honey out of it so i just thought that was cool anyway now that we've given you all the buzzworthy news (laughs) i just thought of that right now um now that we've done that we are going to get into our discussion of a plastic ocean Picture and animate me, cause I'm rolling, heat holding, click clacking, crack a lacking, full packing, more stacking, acting a fool when I teach. Welcome to the world of the plastic beach. Yeah. So A Plastic Ocean is a documentary that came out in 2016. It starts with a journalist, Craig Leeson, who's actually searching for blue whales because he has loved them for his whole life. When he discovers plastic waste in what he was expecting to be this pristine ocean environment. From there, he just takes a deep dive into looking at plastic in the ocean in general what i honestly didn't even need to do deep dive i always say deep dive no matter what the movie is (laughs) it just happens to be a pun this time um so he delves into um (laughs) marine plastic and its effect on aquatic life and its effect on humans as well as potential solutions to the problem so I think this is a perfect movie for us because we have Steffi, who's very passionate about the oceans and plastics effect on them. And then we have Jordan, who knows the plastic industry top to bottom. So I feel like we have this beautiful convergence here that's going to make for a great analysis. Me Um, and Steffi together are basically ocean plastics. You are. Emily and I are just twiddling our thumbs. No, we're going we're gonna to provide lots of questions for you two. Um, but anyway, since, uh, Steffi, I think you're the one who suggested this movie. Do you want to tell us what you thought about A Plastic Ocean and why you thought it would be a good one to discuss? I've been looking forward to this documentary coming out for a few months, and I'm really excited that we are getting to talk about it. And I thought they did a really good job with the cinematography and the story. I think they they did a good job making a really compelling, logical story that had its ups and downs emotionally and comes out very positively, I think. Unlike other documentaries and books that I've read about ocean plastics, it's really easy mm. to get out of learning about this and just feel really bad so I really appreciated that um and and I just thought it was really enjoyable to watch and and I don't think that that's just because I really like marine science and I think that learning about marine plastics is really interesting I feel like anybody would think that this is a really cool documentary to watch so I would really suggest people going out and watching it yeah it's on Netflix people don't get much easier than that (laughs) (laughs) all right Emily what did you think yeah, so I'm actually glad that Steffi went first because Steffi and I have shared an experience of living and going to school in the Galapagos Islands, which I kept thinking about while watching this documentary. On the Galapagos, if you're on a cruise ship, you can come and leave and get a sense of the Galapagos as the place where the theory of 
uh, evolution was created because of Darwin and because it's just so perfect and natural and beautiful and never see the huge amounts of plastic waste that exist on the shorelines and in the oceans of the Galapagos archipelago. And as people living there, I think both Steffi and I had the opportunity to sort of see that disconnect between the public and the private face of the island chain. Um, and this whole documentary really reminded me of that, how what we see typically in planet Earth and in other documentaries that are focused on ocean ecosystems are typically only the perfect and pristine areas. And I thought this, again, deep dive into the slightly less pristine but equally important areas of our blue planet was really valuable um, and worth seeing and evaluating and thinking deeply about, even if it wasn't as pretty. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I have a similar feeling as you. I really enjoyed the sort of almost bait and switch <laughs> transition. <laughs> I honestly had that written down and it also wasn't on purpose. It's just, it just comes to me. Um, so I really like the sort of bait and switch transition from, right, it starts out as, as kind of your typical nature film, like, oh, we're in search of the elusive blue whale, and, um, and you expect it to just be, like, beautiful shots of majestic creatures swimming in the deep blue sea. Well, if you didn't read the title of the movie, but <laughs> if you're just watching it, you could expect that. And then all of a sudden, they transition to exploring this plastic problem, and you're seeing all of these tiny little pieces of plastic in the water and in, you know, the stomachs of animals. Um, and I thought they really did a good job of, of replicating what I'm sure was the documentary makers, you know, horror <laughs> at realizing that this environment had been so disrupted by plastic. Um, and I thought that visually really sent home the message of like, there is no way, which, you know, I think mm -hmm. most people who are environmentalists have heard that expression before, but, um, the documentary does a great job of visually bringing that home because yeah, you, you might think you throw a bottle in the ocean and whatever, it goes somewhere. But then when you see it being found in the gut of a whale or something, not that I'm saying that happens to bottles in particular, but in general, <laughs> it's just devastating. Uh, so I thought they did a really good job with that. My other note is that Tanya Streeter is just a badass woman when they yeah. introduce her doing her like free dives and stuff. That is so cool. Uh -huh. You should just watch yeah. it just for that, even if you don't care about plastics in the ocean, although you should. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I really enjoyed the documentary and I, I recommend it as well. Jordan, what did you think? Um, yeah, overall, I thought it was a pretty well thought out depiction of the problem, aside from the fact that they focused a lot on the United States when in fact we're a really small offender when it comes to the ocean plastics problem. Woo! Um, <laughs> I know, yeah. so rare. I know. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was definitely watching it more from, like, a fact-checking perspective. And um, it seemed like, for the most part, a lot of their data was right. There was one instance where they put a figure up on the screen that said that plastic packaging for food makes up the majority of municipal waste in America. And I have no idea where they got that figure, but it is dead wrong. The EPA's facts and figures for 2014 show that all plastic only makes up 18.5% of municipal waste. So even if we assume that's all food packaging, which it isn't, uh, the figure is not even remotely accurate. So there was that one thing that kind of threw me off and then made me second guess whether or not I trusted their sources. But um, for the most part, I thought it was pretty factual. Nice. And we're glad you were looking at it with a critical eye. Yes. <laughs> so before we get into our discussion of ocean plastics, there are just a couple of definitions we need to give you to kind of provide the framework for our discussion. Um, so Emily, can you give us a definition of closed loop management? Yeah. So as we've established in past podcasts, I have a deep history of being uh, far into the deep ecology slash hippie world, and a component <laughs> of that is my knowledge of the cradle-to-cradle -cradle theory. Um, so this is also known as closed-loop systems, but it's best exemplified by the sort of classic waste management book, Cradle-to-Cradle, -cradle, which talks about the idea that you should only manufacture materials that can be recycled indefinitely 
without deterioration of quality. So there basically is no need to throw something away. Everything will be manufactured in such a way that you can infinitely reuse or recycle it, and then whatever that sort of end product is after lots of recycling is biodegradable. So there's no need to landfill or even compost or turn into biogas or anything like that at any point in the item's life cycle. Um, This is an approach that is usually the sort of philosophical framework for initiatives for waste management in Europe um, and requires a lot of upfront engineering because you have to map out a closed loop for every component of a product before you manufacture it. So a lot of upfront investment in engineering, but on the bright side, um, you get really pretty graphics of closed loops. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank goodness for that. Yes. Um, And then Jordan, you come at it from more of a sustainable materials management perspective. So can you explain to us what that means? So this is kind of an alternative way of looking at it to the closed loop perspective. Um, And in my opinion, this is a more comprehensive way of thinking about the environmental impact of materials because it factors in more than just their impact as waste. So the concept of cradle to cradle really only looks at the impact at the end of a material's life cycle. So it values recyclability over all other aspects. Sustainable materials management looks at the entire impact of the material from production to transportation to use and then the end of life impact. Okay, interesting. So could you give us an example of of what that looks like? Yeah, so I'll use the example of uh, coffee grounds. So there are a couple different ways that they get delivered to people for use in their homes. Um, Everybody knows about the big tin coffee ground cans that coffee used to come in pretty much all the time. These are indefinitely recyclable, so they definitely pass the smell test for cradle-to-cradle or closed-loop system. And from that perspective, you would say they have a lower impact on the environment than the non-recyclable plastic pouches that they commonly come in now. But from a sustainable materials management standpoint, when you think about the whole picture, uh, the steel can weighs about 10 times as much as the plastic pouch and it can't be packaged as efficiently on a box truck. So even accounting for the greenhouse gas savings from recycling the steel can, delivering coffee in a steel can emits about six times more greenhouse gas than the pouch. So Jordan, how would, in a sustainable materials system, how do you account for the environmental impact of having to put something in a landfill? That would depend on the material. So for paper products, which break down in a landfill, they're not supposed to, but they do break down in a landfill and they create methane, which is a greenhouse gas. You would, you would account for the, the CO2 equivalent of the methane and that, that, and it's, it's contribution to climate change in the case of plastic. When plastic goes to the landfill, it's considered pretty much an inert material because it doesn't break down. So that's, that's one of the things that people seem to hate the most about it. The people that are against using plastic really don't like the idea that it doesn't break down. And I understand that to some degree, but you know, when things break down, they release greenhouse gas. And that's another big problem that we're dealing with globally. So you don't necessarily always want the thing that's going to break down. Yeah. Right. And I'll, I'll mention that that's one of the fundamental limitations of the cradle-to-cradle approach is that it tends to assume that waste management is the only relevant issue, whereas there are many environmental factors that should come into play when you're deciding what material to use and when. Yeah. So in terms of sustainable materials management, I can understand people looking at a documentary like A Plastic Ocean, seeing all the plastics inside these poor seabirds' bellies, and just saying, like, we need to get rid of plastic. Um, But you're saying that from a sustainable materials management perspective, that's really not logical. So how how is sustainable materials management looking at the issue of ocean plastics? Yeah, that's a good question. And I want to say right off the bat, I'm not in any way advocating for continuing to dump plastics into the ocean. (laughs) You're not? That, that is a problem. Uh, that is a huge this problem. This is a controversial standpoint that carbon neutral is <laughs> yeah. taking. Yeah. Somebody had to say it. Yeah. 
so yeah, that is definitely a huge problem for the ocean, but the ocean also has other problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, in addition to plastic waste, you think about ocean acidification, which comes from CO2 in the air, diffusing into water and forming carbonic acid that's destroying coral reefs. Uh, climate change is changing the temperature of the ocean, which is melting ice and causing the salinity to change. Uh, these are all problems that stem from the increase of greenhouse gas going into the atmosphere. And there are a lot of studies that have shown that if you replaced plastic with the currently available alternatives across the board globally, the greenhouse gas impact would be around 3.8 times higher. Wow. Whoa. So huh. it is a really lightweight material. It is efficient to ship things. And compared to certain other materials, uh, it doesn't use that much greenhouse gas to produce. There, we can have plastic without having marine debris. So I feel like the documentary, although I really enjoyed it, definitely did some of, of what you're um, kind of critiquing, which is saying all plastic production in general being the cause of ocean plastic specifically. But hashtag not all plastic. <laughs> yeah, hashtag not all plastics. <laughs> yeah, let's start that Twitter campaign, guys. Um, so, so that being said, I kind of wanted to look at what did the documentary get right in terms of ocean plastic as an issue, um, you know, myths that it busted or ones that it perpetuated. So they did do a good job of busting some myths that exist about ocean plastics, such as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, twice the size of Texas, and then you see images of just, like, vast, complete plastic. The islands it, of plastic. Right. It doesn't look like that. They are areas of higher concentrations of plastic, but it's distributed throughout the water column, and the vast majority of the plastics in the water are microplastics, so smaller than five millimeters. Yeah, if it, if it was a giant floating island of plastic like they sometimes depict it being, it would be a really easy problem to solve. Just go <laughs> scoop it up and dump it in a landfill. Right. Myth busted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so another myth that they did bust is that the United States is not the worst. We're yeah. not the worst. Yeah. We're not the worst. <laughs> um, Put that on a hat. Yeah, a lot of times when you see these little... PSAs or whatever videos on Facebook talking about ocean plastics, they definitely frame it as like a United States problem. And yeah, we do generate a lot of waste per capita, but we manage it pretty well. At least, you know, we don't let too much of it leak into the environment. According to the Ocean Conservancy, 50% of the plastic leaking into the ocean comes from just four countries. And that includes China, which is by far the worst, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Yeah, they they did touch on that, and that scene where they were looking at the landfills in the, in the Philippines was devastating. Yeah, poorly managed landfills are one of the primary sources of plastic leakage into the ocean. Um, so that, yeah, they really, they got right to the point source of the problem. But yeah, also it was really hard to watch that part, just seeing all those kids growing up in a landfill, walking around barefoot in piles of trash. Yeah, and growing and growing crops on this on top yeah. of the landfill. Like those it just seemed so heartbreaking to me because you you know, you could see it seems like a great thing. Like, oh you're taking this like trash mountain and you're growing like a lush crop, a, a lush bounty of sweet potatoes and corn and whatever else they had on there. But you know that like those vegetables are going to be not are going to have some bad things in them, right? Like that's pretty well, well established. Probably, so not yeah. so but the real the real issue yeah. is that they're those landfills are full of methane, and that's something that you don't want to be breathing in. Well, constantly. yeah, that's that's for sure. Yeah, but hey, you know, me and my friends used to play on the landfill in Jersey. We it was a capped landfill though, so it wasn't mm, just walking right. around on trash. Yeah, it was so, like a mountain. Yeah. Jordan, I, I'm a little curious about that. So what what is it like? What is it that makes a landfill in the U.S. more certain that debris isn't getting blown off? So a properly managed landfill is designed to keep everything in one place 
without breaking down. And they do that by packing dirt and fill on top of it every once in a while. So they fill it up with trash and then they pack stuff on top of it to create an oxygen free environment. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that doesn't always work, which is why there's methane bubbles in the landfills because stuff is breaking down in there. Um, but in these poorly managed landfills in the Philippines and China and Vietnam, uh, they're not doing that at all. They're just making piles of garbage, which includes a lot of plastic. Okay. Um, and especially these ones that are right on the coast, it just falls into the water. Um, yeah. they're really, they're not doing anything to manage it. And that's because they don't have the, uh, municipal money to do that. So since it's a global problem and we want it to go away, it is kind of up to the more wealthy countries to invest in the infrastructure in the countries that just don't have the money okay. for that. Yeah. All right. Ready for the next myth? So yeah, yeah girl, okay. lay it on us. So originally when scientists started looking at marine debris, they focused on eliminating fishing waste that that was unrecoverable and eliminating trash from being dumped off of ships. But today, 80% of marine debris is coming from land-based sources, not from marine vessels. So it's a whole different ballgame. There's a lot more that you have to coordinate to eliminate that supply line. And uh, they did a good job of, of explaining that in this movie. So that's good. Myth busted. Yeah. <laughs> so, Steffi, uh, now that we've busted some myths, can you just give us some in-depth info on what marine plastics do to aquatic life and, consequently, human life? Yes. So, plastics, as Jordan said earlier, don't fully decompose. And that's something that we like about plastics, or at least we used to. Um <laughs> and when did it all go right. so bad? So, but what happens to plastics when they get introduced into the ocean is that there's a ton of physical and chemical agitators that end up breaking them down into smaller and smaller pieces. So the longer that a piece of plastic is in the ocean, the smaller it breaks up to physically. Um, it will never completely be eliminated. So that's coming from saltwater, sun, and uh, the movement of the water is breaking, physically breaking up the plastic. And, and Steffi, something that's that small is harder to clean up than like a whole water bottle, right? It is much harder to clean up, yes. And, that, and that's a big problem that we're trying to figure out. So what happens is you have plastics of all shapes and sizes, and they can be physically eaten by marine life from zooplankton, fish, whales, seabirds, even worms and mussels absorb it. And so it can physically block digestive tracts, which they showed a lot of really gruesome images in the movie of that, of animals who just starved to death because their tummies were full of plastic and they couldn't digest it. But it also, um, and I think more importantly, has chemical impacts. You mean chemical impacts aside from just the issue of eating plastic? Yes. So plastic is hydrophobic. Like, you know, when you mix water and oil together, they stay separated because oil is hydrophobic. Um, mm -hmm. But what happens is that all other hydrophobic chemicals in the water become attracted to the plastic, which makes them like toxicity cesspools, basically. So those. So those what kind chem of chemicals yeah. might that be? So that includes um, flame retardants, um, coolants, different types of oil, and a lot of these chemicals are known carcinogens. Um, mm. And also endocrine disruptors, right? And endocrine disruptors. Yeah. And endocrine disruptors. And so th the fear is that when an animal ingests this plastic, we know that they uptake these chemicals into their fat tissues. And, you know, we eat seafood. It's a huge part of the human diet, and there hasn't been so far a ton of research directly showing that this chemical interaction is starting, is affecting humans yet, but it's super comp It's really hard to pinpoint because we are exposed to plastics just by what we eat on and 
in our lives. So there's a lot of research going on right now about this topic. This is like a really, really hot topic. But they did do a study looking at fish and um, shellfish for sale in California and in Indonesia. And they found that between a quarter and a third of all of the fish and shellfish that were on the market had plastic in them. Wow. And that's an issue because when we eat shellfish, we eat their whole body, including their stomach. So that's you're eating plastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, just even if you aren't physically eating the plastic, they're still absorbing the chemicals into their fat tissue, which we eat. Right. So for, for like fish, larger fish that we're eating fillets of, you're, you're going to, the risk is that you'll uptake some of those carcinogenic chemicals yeah. that get passed to them through the plastic pieces. But with clams and oysters and mussels that are filter feeders, they're going to have pieces of plastic in their body. Right. Where, where, you know, you typically, when you eat one of those, you bite into a little bit of sand. Some of that might be plastic. So it seems like there's still a lot of work to be done on the role of ocean plastics in human health. Um, Do we know any more about just sort of broader environmental impact and impact on wildlife? Uh, Yeah, so I actually don't have the study right in front of me here, but... There was a study in California, I think it was UC Davis, um, where they took some microplastic, little pieces of plastic, and they soaked it in the San Francisco Bay so that it could accumulate these carcinogens that uh, Steffi mentioned. And then they fed those plastics to, to fish in a laboratory, and then they had a control group of fish that weren't being fed plastics. And they found a higher rate of tumors in the fish that were eating the uh, plastics because they had uh, soaked up so many of those toxins. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll link to that study so people can fact check me on that because I don't remember all of the details, but that is the general overview of it. Right. But I think, you know, with the whole microbeads and other pieces, like, it's not just pieces of giant plastic water bottles that are getting swept off, right, Steffi? Like, there's lots of other sources of plastics to the ocean. Yes. Um, So out of the U.S., the main source of plastic is coming out of your washing machine, off of microfibers that come off of synthetic material like fleece or anything made out of spandex or a lot of outdoors clothes. And so far, we don't have any system in place to collect these microfibers. They basically just wash right into the ocean. So in terms of individual pieces of plastic, this is the most abundant form of marine debris. Wow. So do these um, plastic fibers have similar effects to the microplastics that you talked about earlier in terms of like attracting the toxins? If not worse, because they're so small, they have a really high surface to volume ratio. So they have a lot of areas where they can absorb, absorb chemicals. They also get introduced at the very bottom level of the food chain. So zooplankton eat Mm. these microfibers, which causes the bioaccumulation and biomagnification to be so much worse once it gets up to the very upper levels of the food chain. Right. That's a good point. And I also feel like this, that throws a little bit of a wrench into looking at, um, what I know they talked about in the documentary at one point, they were like, Oh, you know, turn your plastic into a brush and then turn it into a shirt and then turn it into a whatever. And I mean, not to say that those aren't, that's not great and important, but it just goes to show that even if you're wearing something made from recycled plastic and you have the benefits of recycling, that recycled plastic shirt is still going to be contributing negatively to the Marine environment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some solutions. Um, Jordan, do you want to talk about this or? Well, there, there's an organization that, that I think they hosted a competition for engineers to design a filter for your washing machine, kind of like the, the lint screen in your dryer that would uh, remove those microfibers before they got into the water. Which, I mean, if you think about what your, what your lint screen is, a lot of that is plastic, 
Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the same, same amount of stuff is coming out every time you wash your laundry in the washing machine. Yeah. Some other solutions that people are developing are just higher quality clothing that doesn't release as much fiber. They found that um, older fleece releases much more fibers than a brand new fleece, for example. Throw out your stupid windbreakers from the 80s, hipsters. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. don't look cool. You look like my dad. <laughs> just kidding. My dad is cool. If you're listening, dad. God, this episode is just really, like, challenging my environmental preconceptions because yeah. I always want to buy old and used clothes, yeah. right? So that you're not creating the right. use of virgin materials. Well, buy the some old wool clothes. Buy some old plastic clothes and then just don't wash right. them. You either have to <laughs> right. I do. Right. Uh, like, okay. reducing <laughs> the number of times that you wash them or you can buy natural fibers, especially if you're buying used clothes. That's a good idea. And then there's also some other crazy things like this crazy waterless washing machine that uses pressurized carbon what? dioxide to clean your clothes. Uh, wow. Wow. so yeah, that's interesting. That's another option. I like that we're talking about solutions because I want to broaden that to talking about solutions to the problem of ocean plastics in general. So I know there's a lot of debate about the best way, um, to deal with this. Uh, but I wondered if our, our experts could touch on some of those potential, um, solutions. Yeah, so the Ocean Conservancy recently put out a really good report called Stemming the Tide, where they did a lot of good research in the countries where most of this ocean plastic is coming from, and then they worked with industry and those countries to come up with some solutions. And as far as I see it, the short-term solutions are to improve the collection infrastructure in countries where it's lacking and improve landfill management in the countries with poorly managed landfills. So that's where a lot of the waste is coming from. Like we mentioned earlier, these landfills where it's just getting dumped directly into the ocean instead of a properly managed landfill. Um, and then the long-term solutions are to encourage industry to move more towards designing packages for recyclability. The Ocean Conservancy report outlines the marketability, basically, like the value of the plastics that they estimate are going into the ocean. And 82% of them are either low or medium value for recycling due to their design and makeup. Um, and that makes sense because in these landfills in these really poor countries, people are walking through there and picking out all of the recyclable stuff because that's how they make a living. So, so you're saying this stuff wouldn't have been recycled anyway, basically. No, this uh, most most of this material was destined for a landfill. It doesn't really have a value as a recyclable, and that could be because it's a composite. So that would be two two different plastic resins that are basically melted into one. Mm. You can't remove them once that happens. You can't separate them once that happens. So they don't really have a market. Um, or it could be plastics that are mixed with other non-plastic materials like, I don't know. Glittery. Yeah, there's certain hair. fillers or metals yeah. that they put in there. So there is a lot of movement from industry to start designing things for recyclability. And that's, that's going to be really helpful in the long term. The one last thing I do want to mention is... When people talk about ocean plastics and how we need to fix the problem, you hear a lot about cleaning up the plastic that's already in the ocean and not so much about stopping plastic from getting into the ocean. And I kind of look at that as like if you have a dam that has a leak in it and you're throwing the water back over the dam mm. instead of plugging the leak. Oh. Um, it's really hard to get that plastic out of the ocean, especially the microplastic. And we shouldn't even be thinking about investing money in that until we stop plastic from going into the ocean at the source. That's kind of how we're looking at this from the plastic recycling industry standpoint. Um, Emily, how, how are you looking at it from a broader supply chain management standpoint? Yeah, so obviously I speak for all supply chains now, um, because of going to you. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. But I will bring to bear a little bit of what I've seen in the cocoa sector and some of the sort of theory of corporate change in understanding what we can 
do uh, from a corporate perspective to solve this problem. So first of all, I think the important thing to note is that like, there basically is no future in which plastic and consumer pr- packaged goods companies aren't dealing with this issue. Like, this doesn't go away. This isn't something that happened with the documentary. Some people will be angry about and then just disappears. Um, it is going to be a major focus of corporate action, and that's for a few reasons. First of all, there's clear responsibility. So it's like climate change in the sense that there's a huge global impact and that this is a problem that doesn't respect individual borders. But unlike with climate change, it's pretty easy to actually trace back an individual company's role in causing this problem. We've all probably seen Mm. the image of the hermit crab in the Avon bottle. Um, And, you know, Avon is clearly not the only brand that's associated with ocean plastics. It's a global problem. But that brand immediately had to put out a statement after that picture came out saying like here's what we're doing on ocean plastics right (laughs) because there's clear traceability that you don't get with a problem like climate change so there's public recognition it's clearly traceable and it's a problem that doesn't respect borders which means that although companies have clear traceability and need to have solutions to their individual brands they have to work collectively in order to create impact because even if you know you could have a brand that's doing an incredible job of getting zero waste to landfill in the U.S., and if it so happens that their products get shipped to China and aren't properly managed there, they still are part of the problem. Um, So companies genuinely need to be looking at these more systemic solutions like Jordan's been talking about, where you're working on landfill infrastructure, you're working on creating comprehensive waste management plans in these Southeast Asian countries that are major contributors, as well as globally. And you need to be working with governments in these countries, as well as in the EU and the US, to develop policy solutions that make sense with corporate actions. So you say needs to be, I'm, I'm hoping that doesn't mean that they're not already working <laughs> toward that end. No, absolutely. Companies are already taking action on this issue because it, it has gotten a lot of public attention, but more so than that, companies have been burned in the past and recognize that this is a reputational risk. Who wants to be the subject of a boycott because, you know, a Dasani water bottle is seen with some iconic beautiful marine animal, right? Like, right. no one wants to be the subject of that kind of public criticism. And more so than that, there's real corporate opportunities to be recovering costs by having really excellent recycling infrastructure, which is why yeah. Jordan's company can exist. Um, Woo! So there's business opportunities and there's business risks, which all align with taking real action on ocean plastics. So companies are already picking up on that um, in a variety of ways and to a sort of variety of effect. So there's things like Johnson & Johnson, who have taken their not Q-tips, technically cotton swabs, um, and switched from plastic to paper sticks within those. There's companies like Adidas that are making sneakers from recycled ocean plastic. There's companies like Unilever who are taking a broader approach and looking at 100% recyclable packaging by 2025 and supporting collaborative initiatives like the New Plastics Economy, which are really taking a comprehensive approach. And I don't want to create a false equivalency among these kinds of initiatives because, you know, if you're creating a sneaker from recycled ocean plastic, as Jordan talked about, that's not stemming the tide. Um, and if you're switching one Q-tip, you know, why do we need Q-tips at all? Like, Q-tips are totally optional. Yeah, Who needs you're not even supposed to do that with your ears. <laughs> right. It's bad for you people. So, you know, all, all of these approaches have some value at least because they're bringing companies into the space of saying, like, okay, this is an issue that we recognize we need to be tackling. It's their first step into the space. And I don't want to discount these incremental steps that bring companies into the fold of like interacting with NGOs who are really active on these issues and understanding that it's important to their customers. But there is a big difference between these sort of individual small actions and what can be done through collective action through something like the new plastics economy initiative and changing your business model altogether to avoid single use and planned obsolescence products, right? How can you develop a business model around recyclable and reusable packaging? How can you create products that do not encourage path to landfill 
So there, there's sort of transformative and structural change that needs to happen. But in the meantime, you know, the first step down that very long and twisted road is recognizing that it's an issue. And I think for the most part, we're already there in the corporate landscape. Well, that's good. And yeah, certainly true that transformative change is a lot harder than like making a bracelet, a sparkly bracelet out of ocean plastic. And maybe that awareness will be key to spur something. But it is good for people to know. It's good for consumers to know, okay, if you were going to buy a bracelet anyway, sure, get the ocean plastic one. But also you should know that's not, that's not a solution and you should be asking for more from right. companies. Like that's what, that's, that's what I always come down to is like, I'm, I'm fine with these sort of green initiatives that bring awareness. And like, you know, if we're going to be consuming things, might as well put a green, a green tint onto it. But I want people to be informed about the real impact and the real solutions so that they can be demanding more. Totally. Right. Um, one another good thing that companies are doing is that after a lot of pressure now Patagonia is trying to do research to make more durable fleece because that's you know mm. mo- the majority of their clothes are synthetic. Totally. And Unilever who we who I mentioned is also investing in tech on the recycling end to make sure that they're developing the infrastructure to make their recyclable packaging by 2025 pledge um, implementable. Yeah, so I think this issue is something that has really tugged on the heartstrings of people. And I think that the public awareness campaign has been really successful. And I feel like we're starting to get into a place where we can make legitimate actions to solving the problem. Yeah. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. Thanks, Jordan, Steffi, and Emily for your brilliant insights on plastic in the ocean. Now we will move on to our final segment, uh, stories that are giving us hope for the earth this week. So, Steffi, do you want to start us off on what is giving you hope for the earth? Sure. So I'm going to pick up kind of where Brian left off a little bit last week. Um, He was talking about electric vehicles being adopted more quickly than expected. So today, the UK has set a ban on the sales of all diesel and gas-powered cars starting in 2040. And obviously, this is pretty far in the future, but I think it's pretty cool seeing, seeing policies like this be put in place to help guide the markets and just, you know, help us know where, what our goals are. Yeah, absolutely. And I know France had done something like this like a couple months ago, right? So it seems to be maybe, maybe hopefully some sort of domino effect. Yeah. Jordan, what's giving you hope for the earth? Um, so I usually have a news story, but this week, uh, our worm bin is giving me hope. <laughs> um, <laughs> So me and Sylvan started a worm composting bin in a Rubbermaid container about six months ago in our kitchen, and we haven't thrown away any food scraps since. And it looks really good. Like the, It's full of worm castings. It doesn't smell. It just smells like dirt. Um, and some people might think that having one of these is a nuisance or it's a lot of work. But since the only things we're really throwing away now are small pieces of plastic and non-recyclable plastic, um, we hardly ever have to take the trash out anymore. So it actually saves us a lot of time. So the fact that that is such an easy thing to do is giving me hope because I think in general, a lot of the things that people will widely adopt are just things that are easy to do. And this does have a huge uh positive impact on the environment so everybody go start Get on a our level it's not <laughs> it's not hard it's fun i i have totally accepted that i'll never be completely on your guys's level but i can try uh-huh. hey. give you a worm bin when we see you next yeah as a moving into new haven present yeah <laughs> it's fun worms in a bathroom not as yale <laughs> Uh, Emily, what about you? What's giving you hope for the earth this week? So this week I found something hopeful in line with our topic because I'm a jack of all trades now, so Mm. I can look at any topic. Um, So yeah, I'm hopeful about the fact that the nonprofit group We Are the Oceans has partnered with the creators of Angry Birds to create two (laughs) new video games about ocean plastics. 
It's um, not where I was expecting that to go. I know. <laughs> one, it, there's always a bait and switch. Yeah. Um, one is called The Big Catch. The other is called Island Nation Defense. The games launched in April and just hit 3 million players who are doing Angry Birds-style learning about ocean plastics, <laughs> which is just so cool. So yeah, you're trying to navigate through a plastic-ridden ocean, and you learn about fun facts as you do it. Aww, that's um, awesome. So I just get really excited about alternative approaches to educating people on environmental issues, um, because as fun as this documentary was, not everyone wants to spend an hour and a half sitting down and watching people talk about ocean plastics. And maybe they're Angry Birds fans. So there you go. Sweet. Thanks. Go Check play Big Catch, guys. <laughs> um, so my hopeful thing is I was actually having a bit of trouble uh, you know, scouring my usual news sites, trying to find hopeful news. And then I went to Grist, which I often go to because I think they do a really good job of um, reporting cool stories. And I saw that they have this new series all about communities banding together to fight climate change and pollution and other environmental issues um, on a small scale. Uh, and so one of the stories is all about this tiny town of called Tonawanda, which is outside of Buffalo. And they had a coal plant that shut down several months ago. And um, it was it was kind of devastating economically because they were, you know, large, large taxpayer, had provided some jobs to the area. And they really banded together people from all different factions. So environmentalists, people who, you know, have never, ever, and will never consider themselves environmentalists, uh, just your average Joes. And they all kind of came together and came up with ways to make their economy more resilient, jumpstart other industries, etc. Anyway, it's a, it's a long, complicated story. It's a very long article. Uh, so people should just go and read it for themselves. But it's a whole series based on different small towns that are coming up with their own solutions to combat environmental problems. And I think that's really inspiring in a day and age when maybe we can't depend on a lot of top-down policy making that is looking out for the environment. So sometimes we got to do it for ourselves. And that gives me hope. That's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, that is our show for the week. As usual, you can drop us a line if you have any comments about a plastic ocean or any of the topics we discussed this week. You can hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, at Podcast C Neutral. You can go to our website, carbonneutralpodcast.com. We've got lots of fun blog posts and show notes, etc. up there. And you can send us an email at carbonneutralpod at gmail.com. So we look forward to hearing from you. And thanks so much for listening. The revolution will be televised. And the pollution from the ocean, now with devotion. Push peace and keep it in motion. I really enjoyed the sort of almost bait and switch <laughs> transition. <laughs> <laughs>